Well, it's been a while, but uh, here at the farm we have survived yet another turkey season, and even though we aren't quite winterized yet, uh, definitely uh, our workload has diminish some and um, I'm excited about getting back to some of these podcasts and I was thinking back to <clears throat> the seven I've already done and definitely have had um, the primary focus has been an ecological one and I think that's that's very appropriate but I wanted to maybe branch out into some of the other issues that I think um, are involved in regenerative agriculture and in having an operation like ours, and I suppose they would be very similar reasons to why people buy the food that they buy from us. But I think it is important for the ecology piece to be the centerpiece. If if it's a web, you know, maybe it's the node or the anchor or the hub that's the biggest or the the most interconnected with all the others, kind of like the mother tree in a forest. And the others I would consider after the ecological and environment one, I would, you know, nutritional slash health and then social. And I add, well, local and social kind of put together. And then there's humane treatment of animals and there's taste and also just sort of a living for the farmer. And like I said, I, I think it's important for the ecology piece to be the centerpiece there or you know, to be dominant. And it's, if it's a hierarchy, it's not, it's not a linear hierarchy, but in that it's a, in a sense, it, it's primary that I think if you get that piece right, then so much of the other ones will fall into place. Definitely the nutrition will fall into place. Definitely, you know, if you're building your soils, if you're, you know, if your feedback loops are intact and your nutrient cycles are happening, you know, and you're sequestering carbon and storing fresh water and all that good stuff, you know, it comes out both in nutrition and it comes out in taste and it tends to be very, you know, a, a, an environment where the animals thrive. And so if we take care of that piece, I think a lot of these other ones kind of fall into place. And I don't think necessarily that the opposite is true. I think when oftentimes, well, if you take any of these in isolation, but particularly some of these other nodes other than ecological, and you take them in isolation and they're not interconnected with the others and they're not in tension with the others, then you can find yourself with some, I think, very warped thinking and you find <clears throat> yourself in, in systems that don't make sense anymore. And I think it's important to remember that there is tension and I think that works really well with the, the metaphor of the web, you know. Know, these, the, if you have little anchors and nodes of the web, they're pulling against each other, and that's what keeps the web tight and able to span across an area and to make the web effective. But that also means that none of these nodes are going to be completely 100% satisfied or you know actualized 100%. There's there's a give and take, and that's very true of all ecological principles. And if you look at nature and you look at there's constantly you know homostasis going on. There's there's population control by homostasis there's you know things just there's a give and take and as as you know one element begins to dominate others <clears throat> either come in and and are more attention with it and one drops or if you know just this whole sort of it's it's really an art it's not really an equation you know it's a it's way too many variables to be any sort of linear equation and what I want to get at is not 
I'm not trying to get people to see things exactly the way I do, um, but in a sense to show how to think about things when you have multiple nodes on the web's intention. And the way I think the best way to get at this is to show what happens when you do look at something in isolation and what happens when um, you're not taking into account other issues. And I find that, unfortunately, that this happens the most in, in issues when people are concerned about animal welfare and humane treatment of animals. It's definitely an issue that I care about, right? You know, I, I just... I couldn't imagine having to work in a factory farm and, you know, I have a good sense of animals and when when they're happy and when they're not and, and, and seeing them in situations where I know they're not thriving would be, would be hard. I'm empathetic towards them and I care about it, but yet I don't take that issue in isolation. I end up not talking about it as much as I think some people would expect me to. And that's because I think oftentimes I have run into to too many people who that is the primary focus and they focus that in isolation at the expense of others. And so I think there, you know, if we're only concerned about humane issues, then you can actually argue for animals to be inside. You've got this, you've got this whole paradigm of, of raising animals <clears throat> in confinement, in buildings, you know, and you can keep them very comfortable, right? So you can regulate the temperature, you can regulate the humidity, you can feed them on perfect schedules on conveyor belts, you know, and when it comes to winter, you know, and things get cold, right, there's definitely an argument there that animal welfare people would, you know, why don't you bring your animals inside and pamper them a little bit, you know, we as humans would like to sit next to a, you know, hot stove and drink some, you know, hot warm drink while the weather's crazy outside. And I think that's kind of the key there is is that the word itself of humane treatment might be part of the problem because I think when you say humane treatment you you think oh we'll treat them as humans and that's I don't think that's very helpful and uh, people in regenerative agriculture tend to to use the phrase um, you know allowing animals to express their their natural instincts and I think that's a much more valuable much more practical a much better principle to guide you in, in what to do and. I, and the other thing is I think we're very disconnected with nature and so we don't really understand how she works very well. And one of the things I think we forget is that even though we're tapping into this sort of the, the, the abundance and the synergy and this just regenerative aspect of, of nature, it does not mean that nature is very nice. Nature has been you know, through the process of evolution has been developing this very, very, you know, long-term efficient system, but it has come by, you know, come by getting rid of the weak, calling the weak and you know, the strong are the ones that, that survive and their genetics are the ones that are there. And it ends up being those are the systems that thrive. And so that's another thing of, of tapping into. So you, you, you may have this argument that you want to bring animals inside. And of course, then you're going to miss out on all, you know, them being connected to the soil. You're going to miss out on all the nutrient cycles going into there. You're, you know, you're not going to have, you know, these animals that are bringing you the most health within, you know, the food that you're eating. They themselves may be pampered, but they're not necessarily going to be thriving. And I think it's very telling. Like, you you have these systems, like, say you have a big 
a big um, house, warehouse with, you know, hogs in it, most of the time, you know, you don't let any, you don't want any exterior pathogens coming in. So anyone who's even allowed to go in, they oftentimes, you know, they have to wash their boots in this like bath of chemicals to like sterilize their boots before they can even enter in the building. And you're, you're basically in the long term, you're, you're, you're building the system of pampered animals that really can only be handled in the system that nature has never has never provided any sort of environment like that. Whereas we do the opposite when we have our animals outside and we're breeding for resilience and hardiness. And for example, when we first got our sheep, I had sort of lofty goals and a couple things I wanted them to be able to be 100% grass fed and I wanted them to um, obviously I want them to you know at least if you're a second year you you need to be giving twins and but the the actually the the more controversial and thing that I, one of my goals was I wanted to not have to worm them people you know, I raised a few eyebrows there because everyone, at least around here that I know, worms their animals uh, a number of times in the in the year. And they say, well, what's your worming program? You know, and again, that gets back to the rotational grazing thing, right? So it's not just good for the, for the grass, but there's also, there's a cycle for the parasites. And the biggest parasite issue for like <clears throat> sheep is the barber pole worm. And so it has a cycle. So all animals have parasites, you know, even we do, whatever. But you all of them have a certain amount and you're gonna, it comes out in their poop and then it goes out on the pasture and then it has to like go through a couple stages and then as it's in a different stage of its life then it gets eaten back up in the grass goes back into the animal and then it can lay its eggs and start to cycle over right so this sort of moving on and rotational grazing that we do is not just for giving rest to the grass there's also this element that um, there well there's this nice window right so if the the parasite gets dropped onto the pasture. It takes time for it to get go through some of its cycles, right? And so you, you know, if you've moved on before two weeks have have gone by, then you're pretty much ensured that they haven't been able to to reach to a cycle where they would be able to get back into into the animal by eating, you know, being on the grass and eating it. And then on the other side of you know the other tail end of that is that in that cycle they can only live up to like about two months. So if you keep that species off of that area, you know you've moved them on after a week or so, but then you don't come back to that area after like two months or so, then you have much much less chance of the parasites to get back into the animal, right? But the reality is some animals are just more resilient. Sometimes it's it's even has to do with locality. Maybe there's different parasites here. Maybe there's just different conditions that they don't thrive as well and their immune system isn't as well, uh, isn't as strong. And so when we first got our sheep, you know, we took some pretty heavy losses, right? So if there was a, a ewe that, that got worms, then she was cold or she was turned into sausage or whatnot. And we just did not keep those genetics in our herd. And we had some fairly heavy losses at first. But again, it's that long-term efficiency, right? And 
this other system where we're just pampering animals and we're giving them medicine. We're just trying to keep them in these systems that are man-made and factory-oriented and just volume-oriented. Then, you know, and you're worming three, four, five times a year. It's actually come to the point where all the medicines have become resistant. So you end up creating animals that are, you know, basically more and more susceptible. And at the same time, you're creating parasites that are more and more resistant, right? Because same ecological principle applies to, to worming, right? So if you give medicine, there's always going to be a few of those parasites that are resistant to it and are able to resist that medicine. And then their genetics are the ones that are going to be passed on and begin to dominate the population of the parasites. So all medicines become, they all become resistant um, in very little time, especially with the systems that we have. But again, this is you know, we're disconnected to nature and we, you know, that kind of sounds really harsh to some people's ears that we just cull these animals out to get their genetics out. But that's kind of, that's nature systems. And she's never, nature has never been very humane in her own way. She works for the long term and the systems, the evolution there, that all, all that works in, in the long term. You know, when you have this disconnect with nature, then you begin to, and you, you taking this welfare issue in isolation, then you end up with it some very strange places. And this really came to light for me, oh, I'd say about 10 years ago. And I was at a sustainable agriculture conference and I decided, you know, they, they do these sessions like an hour and a half or so. And uh, people are teaching these sessions and you get to choose whichever class you want to go to. And I remember I had decided I was, I'd go to this animal welfare certified class. Well, you know, <laughs> I was naive. <laughs> I, I figured, you know, I, I am the antithesis to, you know, factory farming and that really the issue would not be, you know, my techniques or my, the way I raise my animals or whatnot, but it would be like, would it be worth the paperwork and paying for the stamp and would it really get me more market? But I quickly ran against up a wall and I quickly struck out, you know, and they were going through the different animals because you could, you know, you could certify your different products and your different animals. And right away, the first one was about, you know, the broilers, the meat chickens. And back then we were following Joel Salatin style and we raised all our meat birds or all our chickens <coughs> for meat. We raised them in Salatin pens. And this means that you have a 12 by 10 pen and it's you know it's got some roofing on it for shade and it's got some chicken wire but the bottom is open so they have access to the soil they have access to the grass you know they have access to some of the bugs that come in you know you move this whole pen to a fresh piece of, of pasture every day well to the animal welfare people this was this was a confined this was a cage right and as soon as you use the word cage it has a thousand negative connotations for the human construct right and so when you're looking at it through human eyes that was just not acceptable I remember even clarifying it, you know, I thought, well, maybe they're thinking about, because they'll allow animals inside a building if they have enough space. So maybe like within this pen, it was just an issue of, you know, you have to have, you know, you can't have, you know, more than 70 or 75 birds in a pen or whatever the number, you know, 50, 40, you know, whatever they would call that number. I was just trying to figure out, but it was just, no, this system is, you know, would not be allowed. And so I was like, okay, all right, well, they, it's definitely not how I would have 
interpreted what was you know the humane in that in that operation but i said well okay well how about our hogs i thought well for sure i could i could do the hogs i mean our hogs they're in a sort of electric netting fence when they they even have a shelter they can go to but they romp around usually i put the hogs along the edges of the pasture because um one they're hard on the pasture but that way they can also have some some woods and some forest because they they love to come out and eat the grass and you know eat the pasture but they also love just hanging out in the woods and they're digging in there and eating acorns and roots and i don't know what all they're doing in there but that's you know they go there for shade they go, they just thrive basically when they have um both forest and pasture so and you can see the the hogs they're curly their tails are curled and they they run around and they're rambunctious and they make that pig sort of bark or you know and you can just tell they're just very happy animals but I got disqualified because I use nose rings, right? And so, of course, the reason why I use nose rings is because I my main crop is my pasture. And, of course, that's the very you know, foundation of us being a solar energy-based operation. And a hog without a nose ring will just turn your pasture into one big mud wallow. It's so we just put nose rings and you would be amazed even with nose rings how much they dig. And again, this is one of those things that comes into ten, into tension, right? With, you know, whatever figure, whatever numerical value could put it, maybe they would be, you know, 5% happier if they could dig deeper holes and, you know, have some wallowing mud pits and whatnot. But for me, it's in tension with, with the ecology and the environment and the pasture and that remaining intact. And so I put nose rings in. And so, you know, they drew the line somewhere in a different place than I did. And so I went on and I was like, well, okay, well, surely I could get my turkey certified. Because if there's one animal that can compete with Epicurean nature and being able to, you know, just loving life, being curious and just showing how happy they are, it's turkeys. They're they're just a a lot of fun to raise and we so we have them again they can get of a shelter that they can get under when they want to and then we open up a fresh piece of grass for them every day and they go in there and they're eating those big blades of grass and they're you know catching a bug they might catch a big grasshopper and before you know it a big rugby game has ensued because you know another turkey comes along and grabs part of it and pulls off a leg and then another one is they're all wrestling over and it's just it's lively it's fun i mean they're, they're they're thriving but in the eyes of the welfare people these animals could not even be certified if you had this breed um then you just automatically disqualified to understand their thinking it's true these what well, we were, we raised the broad-breasted whites this is the commercial breed that just grows you know they've been breeding it for generations and it just grows fast and it has that big double breast that customers are wanting for Thanksgiving table. It's just a beautiful looking bird when it's, you know, on the platter. And for us, they're a great compromise because they will put on a lot of weight, but they're also really good foragers. They thrive, they do really well and they taste phenomenal. And we get enough grass and we get enough of, you know, healthy exercise and sunshine and all those ingredients that go into it tasting really well. You know, we will put our birds up against any heritage breed birds any day in terms of taste and nutrition but the the thing that gets you know the, the negative thing about these birds is that if you take the adults and unless you have these adults on a very strict diet they can't mate so you have to artificially inseminate them 
And uh, yeah, this is obviously not the best case scenario. And, and I get it, you know, that's not the most natural thing. And it's not, there's this sort of definitely a, a negative strike against them as well as, you know, there's like 90 some percent of all turkeys raised in, at least in the U.S. are these birds. And so you don't have the diversity of, of genetics. But in this case, it, it gets down to bottom line, really, right? So like we could get a heritage breed bird, but we'd have to raise it for about twice as long and it would end up being about half the weight. So in order to to make the kind of money that I need to make to make it worth my time, I would probably have to like triple our prices. So already our prices are a certain percentage higher than just conventional food, right? So our turkeys can be $4 a pound and we, you know, if you get the bigger ones, they they can grow up to be 20 pounds there. But if I'm going to do a heritage breed bird, you know, in twice the amount of time, I might have a 10 pound bird and I've been feeding it for a lot longer. And, you know, in order to, to pay for my time and everything, I'd probably have to like put my prices up to like $10 a pound or something. And, you know, suddenly you've priced out most people and you're just selling to the elite. And I just, you know, at least anybody in my own demographic wouldn't be able to, to afford these birds. So this is a great example of, um, you know, things aren't going to be perfect, but you take into consideration all the different things that go into what makes, a, you know, what makes a farm. And so I was really surprised, but, you know, those birds weren't even allowed, despite the fact that they, they thrive and they're very, very happy in our farm. They didn't even think that those birds should actually exist. And uh, so... You know, in each of these cases, I kind of felt like, well, maybe there was an argument that that we all kind of are, are, are using the same criteria somewhat, and but maybe they're just drawing the line. You know, they have different specs, or they're drawing a line at a different place than I would. And it was in, until I, I, well, I hit a brick wall, and uh, I realized that it was much deeper than any of this, and it was a difference of thinking. And what really came down to it, and what really came to a head was... When, how you killed the animals. I was naive. I, you know, I didn't grow up in, in the States. You know, I've been here most of my adult life. And, but sometimes I just walk into sort of <laughs> cultural landmines and I had no idea that this was such an issue. But apparently they're very almost scared or they're very concerned about um, that last moment of, of an animal experience, its own death. Um, so we're under an exemption so we can kill all our poultry on farm, which is fantastic. Um, not only does it take out middlemen, but it's, it means that your birds are as fresh as can be. And they're also very little, they're not stressed very much at all. But when it comes to the actual killing, we will flip these birds upside down in a cone and I use my knife and I cut the jugulars and and they bleed out. And there's that five, 10 seconds where they're like, oh my God, what's happening? And their blood is flowing out. And before you know it, they faint. And then um, and then sort of the automatic nervous system takes over and they shake, you know, kind of violently, but they're stuck in these cones and stuff. And, you know, for someone who's not used to that, I guess maybe that's just not something that they're comfortable knowing about or seeing. And, you know, which again, 
my reference is always nature, right? It's just, it's very rare that you're going to have anything in nature that's actually that clean of a kill. You know, most of the time there's, there's the chase and then there's the mauling and there's the wounding and, you know, depending on what animal or what, if you've got a, you know, pack of wild dogs or a pack of lions or whatever it is, and they're going after, sometimes when they go after like really big prey, you know, I mean, this can go on for hours where they chase it down and then they corner it and then they wound and then finally it just succumbs, you know. So it all depends on your reference point. Again, the irony comes in. And for me, it, you know, it just didn't make any sense. And I could find a butcher or a place that's like animal uh, welfare certified for killing, you know, and certainly not going to be close to around here. So it might be three, four hours away. So what I would do, you know, pack up, you know, say I pack up 300 birds in the back of my pickup truck and I could drive them down the highway for three, four hours to get to this place. We're very rural, right? Our birds have heard my tractor. They've heard some cars and whatnot on the, you know, roads, you know, but not going very fast. I mean, we live on a gravel road, whatnot, right? I mean, to, to put them on a highway going at speeds of 65 miles an hour with screaming trucks and cars, I mean, that's stressful. You know, I mean, if you got to do it, you got to do it. That's just part of it. But it affects the bird. I'm sure that, that those adrenaline levels are going to affect taste. I could do that and I could subject them to, you know, the stressful time. In the, but the, what I would be accomplishing, I'd bring it to this butcher who would be doing the killing and they would save them that five seconds of bleeding out of them experiencing their own death. So, and, and how they do this is it's with, a, I think they electrocute them. They have this sort of instrument that electrocutes them or there are even some places that gas the birds and uh, kind of like a gas chamber, which is very odd to me. And, the, and there's a personal element to there as well that I mean I just so much rather be skillful with a, a simple tool of a knife and you know the skill of my hand than being dependent on this tool that I have to plug in and charge and and even thinking about me in the middle of all this water and metal and an electric current and trying to you know I just it just seems wrong on so many levels I began to understand that it had a very similar feel to like why I oftentimes some of the thinking that I find in certain vegetarians that are vegetarians on the principle that they don't want to kill things and you don't want to kill animals. And I just find that so foreign because that automatically means that your reference points, your reference point is not nature. Nature's, you know, I would talk about is the currency is eating and killing. And that's just the way that, that nature functions. And it's not necessarily nice. I get that. But that's, <laughs> that's just reality. You almost get the sense when you, I, I talk about it with the welfare people, you almost get the sense that anyone who's going to kill and not want to take off that last, you know, experience of pain it's almost as if they enjoy that suffering and which is ridiculous right you know i mean i for me i feel like i am giving them less suffering right we we'll do 300 birds in the morning you know up to 300 birds that will pack up and we'll put on a trailer and go across the field that's the transport right at like 15 miles an hour i mean the contrast to me is plain and clear right so you they're not stressed you know and just you know at, at most they've traveled a half a mile or something you know across the fields to get to the processing shed you know but it's that moment of death that that really bothers them
And they have almost this idea that, you know, someone who would kill them that way sort of enjoys that or, you know, oh, you just want to, you know, them to experience pain. And it's not that. I mean, there's no incentive. I mean, we, we will do up to 300 birds in the morning, but we got to have those. I got, we got to kill them and scald them and pluck them and eviscerate them and clean them. And then they got to be all ready because that afternoon we're selling them to customers and we sell a, a significant percentage of those birds directly to customers and they get a super incredibly fresh bird, right? And so there is no incentive. There is no incentive for this time, you know, for to elongate the time of death. You know, I want them to bleed out. The reality is it takes a little bit of time for um, all the blood to come out and for all, you know, to sort of them to stop shaking and then they're ready to be put in the scalder. So I'm not just trying to pick on, you know, uh, certified animal welfare. It's just that I, I think this is a great example of taking one of those issues in, in total isolation and not having any regard for its context or how it relates to other nodes of the web. And I think, you know, we can easily take another example on sort of the other side of things if um, on a more conventional farm where it tends to be, you know, everything gets down to uh, the baseline, right? The farmer making a living, which is a very important aspect of the whole thing. I mean, it's essential. That's part of sustainable is being able to make a living out of it so that you can keep doing it. You know, and I think incentives also has quite a bit that's involved in, in, in why people, again, it's not that these farmers who have these confinement operations are these evil people that enjoy suffering, right? When you listen to some of the activists talk, right? But but they've just been, well, first of all, they've been for decades and decades, all the advice coming from the government, all the advice from the experts is basically go the route of Walmart, right? Just go massive amounts of volume, get bigger and bigger, allow your margins to become tinier and tinier, but that way you're like outselling everybody else. And then just because you have so much, you know, volume, then you can, you can eke out, you know, supposedly have a, have a living out of all that, right? You've got them in these systems indoor and you, you're you incentivized to pack them tighter and tighter. And then it, it, when that becomes, you know, the, the system, then all these other things start falling into place, right? Like, so one of the things that goes on, and this actually is somewhat related to the welfare thing, because... Um, where you have animals inside and you may have someone, let's get the animals inside and then you'd have to have very specific like, oh, you can only have this many animals per the space because otherwise things get crowded so fast, you know, and that's where a lot of the certified welfare people get concerned about. But if you're not going to get extra money for that, right, then you just keep packing them in tighter and tighter because, you know, you're at that bottom line, just being able to get more out of that space because that infrastructure is so expensive to build these buildings. If we can stick 10 more animals in this little amount of space, then, you know, we get that much more, um, you know, our margins can be just eked out a little bit bigger and whatnot. So... The, the problem is then suddenly in order to maintain that system, things become inhumane, right? So not only are they like crowded and stuff, but they become stressed. And when you become stressed, right, uh, these, especially when you talk about hogs or chickens, they're, they're not vegetarian, they're omnivores, right? So you stick them together, they start eating each other. 
many of these places that have indoor hogs, they're cutting off the tails because when a hog is all stressed and he wants to eat someone, then he grabs that tail, right? And that's the, the easiest thing to grab, and then he can really seriously wound another hog. Well, it, chickens, even though chickens are, are like any bird and they can have quite a high density of, of a flock together, but they have to have they have to be able to come together. They have to be able to also, you know, have space and and, free, and if if they don't have enough space, then they also eat each other. So what do they do? They clip off the beaks, right? And they debeak them, right? Which is actually maybe a quick little anecdote because I find this again really ironic because you know for me that seems really inhumane, but that's not even the most important issue. For us, we want those beaks so that those chickens can act out their natural instincts. And their natural instincts, to be able to grab that blade of grass and to, to be able to catch those bugs, you know, they need those those beaks intact, right? And so that's all very important for them to be able to forage the way they did. And I remember, because normally we get our chicks, you know, uh, you know, a day or two old from the hatchery, you know, and we specify, please don't debeak them, you know, and they know that we're that kind of operation, so they don't. But several times, though, we have gotten already, like, pullets that have already been um, grown out, and they're just about ready to lay. And I remember, you know, I have to ask specifically that they'll raise some without taking off the, the beaks. And I remember having this discussion with this guy. Well, he's like, I got this new technique, and I got it certified. And I think, if I remember right, he was saying it was animal welfare certified, and it was this new technique that they were allowing so that you could just take off like a quarter of their upper beak. I just, I was like, no, no, I want the beak completely intact. They're outside, you know, and they sometimes are getting even like small little tiny bugs, like like ticks or what, or mites, you know, they, they, they need to have that sharp point. But here was a, and I really think it was an animal welfare certified or some sort of certification that it still fit under it, was humane, and they were only taking off a quarter of the beak or not. In any case, you know, it's not like the farmer goes out and says, oh, I just want to be mean to animals, so what, what can we do to them that's mean? It's that they're incentivized to build these huge buildings, and you put so much money into building these buildings, and you got to pack them full in order to get enough product out there to make some money to pay back the buildings because you're heavily in debt and you're in these loans. So sometimes these farmers are in, almost in slavery. They're, they're also in these systems that they're just they're stuck and so hard to get out of. And it's the scale that's killing them. And that leads you right into to local. If you've got a building and if you've got a you know a, a hog confinement operation and and you're whatever raising a million hogs a year or whatever, then I mean that's that's not just for your local town. You'll saturate that market before anything, right? And. It, so this scale, it, I mean, you raise that many, it's going to go all over the place, right? And and suddenly, you've just your carbon footprint just skyrockets, right? And that's one thing about local, right? That that is immediately the the thing about local, regardless of your technique. Even if you don't, even if you say you've got a local operation and you're keeping them indoors, and maybe you're being good and you have them indoors and you have pretty good amount of space and everything, and and so you're not connected to the soil and you're not getting all the nutritional benefits, but at least you have that thing going. You have what going for you is is that your carbon footprint is just cut by factors of 10 probably because and, and i think and I've, I've done this before but i think it's um 
it's important enough to go through it. I, I think I did it when we were, oh yeah, it was when I was talking about inputs and I was talking about, or, or mitigation where they, you know, the, the, the waste and like they say, oh, you know, the inputs of the harmony where, you know, you have these chickens and they're all in confinement and, you know, and then you got to deal, do something with the poop. And so all that manure, and then they come up with this great idea that, because it's not going directly in the pastures, but let's make it available so we could sell it. And it's a it's an input that's um, not chemical or, you know, something that was grown in a Petri dish or, you know, at the factory or whatever. So, but what does it take to get that, get that, right? So you, you have to collect all that. You have to transport it to the facility that's going to treat it and and dry it, and then they package it, and then they have to transport it to a distribution center, and then the distribution, you know, then it goes out to all the stores, and then finally, you know, yeah, and then finally the farmer can get it, and then he can, you know, put that fertilizer on his, you know, on his vegetables. So that's one that that's the tail end of the operation, but also on the other side, right? So whether chicken or hogs or cows, well, it might be worth talking about the cows because, right? So a cow, most all cows, even the ones that end up like in a feedlot, you've got, you know, it's a you're you begin your life out on pasture with mama. It's a cow calf operation. That's that's a great deal of farms around here. That's what goes on. So you your first around a year or so of your life, you're out on pasture. And that can range anywhere from, you know, one that's heavily grass based to just very highly grain oriented. And but then you, they get taken to a they get taken to a stockyard or to the auction or to wherever and then they get transported to a feedlot. And there it's there's no pasture, right? And there it's all grain oriented. And anytime it's you're talking about grain, you're talking about heavily. It's just grain is basically made of oil. You've got all those you know, those oil inputs there, and that carbon, and then that carbon footprint. Then of course you want to you you have to transport them to the butcher, and then from the butcher they got to go to refrigeration, and then you know and the holding place, and then those again has to be transported out into distribution, and then they get to the store, and then finally they get to the people. On, on every side, right, you just, it's all being transported. And because of the volume and because that oil is subsidized, that it can actually end up being like economical in the sense that it's, it's less expensive to, to be transporting all this way. And my point is, is that as soon as you're taking just one of these factors in isolation, wh- whether it's, you know, the animal welfare or whether it's the, the bottom line or, or maybe it's just any of these others, if you're just the nutrition or what, it would any or even just the ecological, if any of these are just taken in isolation, then you quickly warp and you quickly become way out of balance and you're not in tension and you're not in this sort of synergistic system and you come out with all these just weird and just lopsided systems that if they're allowed to go longer and longer and long enough they actually become quite destructive so whereas i can sort of laugh at the welfare stuff and you know be like well that's never gonna it's hard to even make a living with that and it would be you know you come up with some very sometimes silly things on the other hand you know when if you're just concerned about the bottom line we know that that'll quickly lead you to a place where you're you know exporting all the environmental damage and you now you have food that's really not very nutritious and all so to sort of wrap this up you know, all my ramblings here is 
we got to be able to have, you know, and there may even be more issues and nodes of this web than, than, than how I break it down. But you have these these systems that these different nodes and these different issues they need to be working together well enough and with some tension but they need to be working well enough as a whole system and that's where you get that you know that byword of holistic you see it as a whole system it gets back to the gestalt it gets back to the Kierkegaardian when they're all working together well enough and that each of these things are being addressed and being take care care of at a certain amount of level the, the sum of the parts suddenly creates a whole that is much bigger than the sum of the parts. It's a way of being able to always check, sort of checks and balances as well. I think that's important. And I think that it, this is can be very applicable, whether you are the farmer and you're trying to come up with systems and a, a business model that can meet all those criteria, or you're the customer who's buying the food and participating in, in one system or another. We have to be able to look at a, a number of variables all at the same time and how they interact with each other. And I think I'll end with that. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you later.